Good morning, church family. This morning, our scripture reading comes from Romans 10, 14 to 21. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. But I ask, have they not heard? Indeed, they have, for their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. But I ask, did Israel not understand? First, Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. Then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, he says, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. This is the word of the Lord. So glad to be able to be here today with you and walk through Romans 10. And uh, before we get into the text this morning, two weeks from today, we'll have a members meeting here. So we need to announce that to you. Those of you who are members, please mark that down. We'll pray together and then we'll meet for a little bit to talk about a couple things. One, the report from our covenant renewal season, some of the things that we've learned and uh, where we're headed from here, including um, something about an online member directory, how to be able to know one another's names and all of that. So we'll give you some updates on that. And as well, we have some upcoming sabbaticals for a couple of our other pastors and want you just to be aware of uh, what our plans are. So hope you can come as a member um, next or two weeks uh, from today. All right, Romans 10. Let's pray and ask the Lord to help us now. Father, give us big hearts and a global vision to embrace the call for evangelism, not based upon some mantle of guilt, but because of the joy of what it means to have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. Help us, Father, to hear the tone, the tenor of this text, and then to be moved to see our careers, our neighborhoods, our homes, our lives, our summer jobs, our relationships differently. So, Indeed, we agree with that song, Lord, light a fire within us, we pray. And I ask this in Jesus' name, amen. One of my favorite Sundays around here, I love Sundays in general, but of all the Sundays that we have, the Sundays that I love the most are when we have baptisms in our services. There was a time when we didn't used to do that on Sunday mornings, and it's, it's a really important moment for us to be able to witness the beauty of what's happening. I have some pictures here that I wanna show you this morning about um, baptism. There's something beautiful about someone coming out of the water. There's a story behind that picture, um, as there is with everyone's picture that you're gonna see. There's just something beautiful about seeing somebody give a profession of faith in Christ, tell the story about how they put their faith in Jesus, and then in a beautiful picture of being buried in Christ and then being raised in newness of life, that we celebrate what really has happened inwardly that we didn't get to see on the outside. 
baptismal services unlike any other in that we're able to just not only embrace one another because of the joy of the moment, but realize this is what we really believe and God really changes people's lives and it makes us really happy, both pastors and people in our congregation. And I found myself often when I'm hearing these testimonies and seeing people come out of the water, I, I find myself thinking, man, that's why I'm in ministry right there. To be able to hear people in terms of their lives being changed and a passionate pursuit to follow after Jesus. It reminds me why I'm so grateful to be able to be a pastor. You see, the beauty of pastoral ministry is the fact that you get to be about three feet away from seeing people's lives radically changed. There's a lot of heartache, there's a lot of pain, there's a lot of emotional trauma related to pastoral ministry because you get to sit three feet away from marriages that blow up and people who do terrible things and people who are stuck in their sin. But you also get to be right there when someone moves from death to life. You get to be right there when somebody becomes a follower of Jesus. You, and what's more is you get to be a part of the equation of that happening, to think that words come out of a mouth and they land on a human heart, and God sovereignly and supernaturally empowers those words to give life in a person's soul, and you get to see that very moment. There's, there's nothing like it in all the world. The beautiful thing about what it means to see this reality is it reminds us that God works in supernatural ways for the saving of people's souls. I mean, what, what could be more important? Today we're talking in this text about the beauty of evangelism. And this is an extension of where we were last week in our text. We ended last week in verse 13. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And my aim last week was to lay before you the compelling case of receiving Christ now to hear this text and to realize that the word is near you, the word is right in front of you, the word about Christ, the word about you, the word about what it means to have forgiveness. And if you were here last week and you still have not crossed the line, my prayer is that today would be the day when you move from death to life, when you are brought from being under judgment to being forgiven and you put your faith in Christ today in the person and work of Jesus. Last week was about the invitation to be saved, the broad, sweeping invitation for everyone to put their faith in Christ. This week is about how. How does that happen? If the message is wide open, how does it actually go forth? So our text today identifies both the challenge of that message, the methodology of that challenge, and then the beauty of how this gospel is communicated. I think this text is in our journey at a very strategic point, even in our own calendar, our yearly calendar. I mean, you're, you're enjoying the beautiful weather, aren't you? It's payback for January, right? And, and you're discovering that there are people who still live next door to you, right? They're coming out, right? And they're pale, and you're like, hey, you still live there, you look as bad as I do, you know? And, and uh, you're working in your yard, their, their lawnmower breaks, kids are playing together, and, and the next number of months really present a strategic opportunity for unique conversations. Or you could just simply use summer to rest, relax, and recreate, and waste it for gospel purposes. 
And I think that this text is at a really important point in our calendar for us to think about what does it mean to really preach the gospel, to have the gospel be integrated into our normal everyday lives. How does that gospel message go out? What I wanna do as we look at verses 14 and 21 is I wanna reverse engineer the text. I wanna look at it not in the order in which it's presented, but instead to show you first the sad reality of Israel. That's the challenge. Israel was in a bad place. Secondly, to show you the divine process of conversion. God's got a means by which he brings people to salvation. And then finally, I wanna show you the beauty of feet that carry the gospel and encourage you to look around you and think, what are the normal everyday things in my life, like feet, that can be used for the gospel? So that's what we're gonna do this morning. First here, the sad reality of Israel, verses 16 to 21. These verses identify for us a theme that we've heard before, namely that Israel missed her Messiah, pursued a righteousness based upon her own standard, and as a result, they were hardened. The story of Israel is one of caution, realizing that the way in which God dealt with Israel is a warning about the danger of self-righteousness. You ought not read the story of Israel without looking at Israel as a mirror looking at ourselves. It's also about context in that it shows us how Paul thinks about his own people, the Israelites, even as he attempts to share the gospel with a people who he knows, for the most part, have rejected the gospel. He keeps going into the synagogues. He keeps preaching the gospel to Jewish people. It's not like the Apostle Paul, while called primarily to the Gentiles, it's not like he abandoned the Jewish mission, even though he knew that for the most part, the people of Israel were hardened against the gospel. Paul keeps going in the synagogue. He keeps preaching the gospel. He keeps being persecuted. He's relentless in sharing the gospel, and there's a reason why, and here it is. This is why. The resisted gospel is still a gospel that's worth sharing. That's the point. What happened to Israel says something negative about them, but it doesn't say anything negative about the gospel. The resisted gospel is still a gospel that's worth sharing. And why is that important? It's important for your family reunion that's going to happen in July. When once again, your Uncle Dave's gonna show up and he's heard the gospel how many times? And you go to that family reunion and think, he's heard it, I'm not gonna tell him again. And you think in your mind that unless there's some semblance of hope that he'll receive Christ, that you're not gonna share the gospel. And this text would say, no, the resisted gospel is still a gospel worth sharing. It's a great encouragement to those who have family members or neighbors or colleagues who have heard and rejected, heard and resisted, and granted that needs an unusual kind of skill and compassion in sharing the gospel, but for some of us, we get so easily discouraged thinking, well, they're not gonna really receive Christ anyway, so I'm just gonna give up, and the example of Israel in terms of how Paul handled them would beg us, plead with us to say, no, you keep sharing the gospel because the worth is in the gospel, not just in it being received. Let's see this, verse 16 is where we're gonna start. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. It's interesting that Paul uses this phrase, obeyed the gospel. He says the same thing in Romans 1, that he's trying to bring about, his, his ministry is the ministry of obedience um, for the faith. The idea is there's a connection between obedience and the gospel. It doesn't mean that those who obey are those who are then converted, as if salvation comes by works. 
But what it does mean is this, that God offers the message of salvation, he offers the means of righteousness through the personal work of Christ, and when it is resisted, it's not just that one doesn't believe in it, it's that one actually rebels against God's standard for righteousness, and so by rejecting the gospel, one fails to not obey the gospel, that's the point. You see, it's one thing, if I tell you something and you don't believe it, I mean, you'd be wrong, but you wouldn't be in danger, right? So you don't believe me, that's, I mean, that's up to you, but you're not, I mean, it's not like it's gonna create any kind of eternal problem. You don't believe what God says about you? You don't believe what God says about your sin? You don't believe what God says about righteousness? That's an eternal problem. And so the idea of obeying the gospel, that not have all obeyed the gospel, means that the failure to believe is not just not to believe one thing in reference to another, it means a refusal to respond to the reality of who God is. They were a disobedient people. They refused to believe the gospel. They didn't obey the gospel. And then he quotes Isaiah. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? Interestingly enough, that's a quote from Isaiah 53, Isaiah 53, one actually. Isaiah 53, for those of you who know the, the book of Isaiah, that particular chapter is about the coming Messiah, where words like this are used, but he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs, carried our sorrows. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. That's the chapter. And in that context, Paul quotes Isaiah 53, 1, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? The point is this, that the Jews failed to believe the gospel. They rejected the Messiah. They stumbled over Christ. Verse 17 summarizes it. So faith comes by hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. In a moment, We'll look at this ordering of faith and hearing. We'll unpack that fully in verses 14 and 15. But you need to know that I think the point of verse 17 is the phrase, word of Christ. So faith comes by hearing, and hearing through the word of or the word about Christ. In other words, there's no message of the gospel apart from the word about Christ. The Jews were religious, they had a lot of faith, they heard many spiritual truths, but the reality was without Christ, there was no salvation. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing comes through the word of Christ. You see, there are many in our culture who would want you to believe that as long as someone is spiritual or religious, that's what counts. You're gonna run into this at least some point in your lifetime. If you're a young person heading off to college, you're especially gonna hear this. It doesn't matter necessarily what you believe about your particular religion, as long as someone is religious, that all roads really lead to God. I think I've used this illustration before, but in high school, we had someone come into our Bible class, and this person suggested that all religions were essentially the same. They just looked at God from different angles. And this person described God as an elephant, and Jewish people just grab a hold of his legs, and they think he's a trunk, like a, like a blind man going up to an elephant, and they're feeling him, they describe God, he's like a, like a trunk of a tree, and a Muslim goes up to God, but he, he feels the side of the elephant, he says, no, God's more like a wall. And, and Christians grab a hold of his tail and say, no, he's more like a branch, or a, maybe a snake, or something that, like that. And the person who was making this case said, we see, whether it's Jews, or Muslims, or Christians, they're all touching the same animal, just from different points. All roads kind of lead to God. The, the problem with that is twofold. Number one, God isn't an elephant, newsflash. And secondly, 
The other problem is this. To use the analogy, the elephant talked and the elephant said, I'm an elephant. In the Bible it says, my son became flesh and dwelt among you and in him there is life. The point is, in the Bible, God very clearly and specifically identifies that unless you have faith in the word about Christ, that there is no salvation. In fact, this is what got the early apostles in enormous amount of trouble, and I would predict this is what's gonna get Christians in trouble in our own present culture. It's getting them in trouble all around the world. Peter and John were hauled before the council and they said this, This Jesus is the stone, this is Acts 4, 11. This Jesus is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is, here's what will get you in trouble. No other name under heaven given among men by which we are saved. I would predict that when persecution comes in our own country, it'll come because of this very issue, because most people in our culture will have no problem if we say that we believe that salvation comes to the person and work of Christ, but they will have a problem when we say, and there is no other way for salvation to come except by that name. But this text says there is no salvation, there is no faith apart from the word about Christ. Why does that matter? It matters because your spiritual family members, your religious neighbor, your zealous coworker, unless they believe in Christ Jesus, there is no salvation. There's no redemption, there's no forgiveness. That means that if you're here today and you're religious but you don't have a relationship with Christ, or maybe in our present day nomenclature, it's more about being spiritual. I'm, I, I'm spiritual but I'm not religious. Apart from a relationship with Jesus, there there is no forgiveness, there's no redemption, because the Bible says that the only way for a person to have their sins atoned for is in the person and work of Jesus. Church, I I know that probably 98% of you not only agree with what I just said, you could say that, but here's the problem. We don't feel that as deeply as we should. We need to be reminded that there is no other way for people to be saved from their sins. That if people around us die in their sins, no matter how religious or spiritual they are, if they don't have a relationship with Jesus, according to the Bible, there is no covering for their sin. So Israel didn't just reject the Messiah, they rejected their only hope for redemption, and it's still their only hope for redemption. The sad reality of Israel is that they refused to believe in their Messiah. Faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. Then Paul asks two questions, first in verse 18, and then in verse 19. Didn't they hear? Did they not understand? Meaning, are they not responsible because they didn't hear the message? And he answers both of these questions and then cites an Old Testament passage. In verse 18, he says, but I ask, have they not heard? Indeed they have. And then he quotes Psalm 19, a verse, by the way, 
Uh, that's more about, in context, in, verse, uh, in Psalm 19, more about general revelation, that the glory of God is seen, his handiwork is seen in all over creation. But Paul uses this verse as an illustration of the fact that the message of the gospel has gone forth. He quotes it and says, their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the end of the world, meaning that the gospel has now been spread to the Gentiles, and by being spread to the Gentiles, the Jews certainly heard the message of the gospel. The fact that it's gone to the Gentiles is proof enough that the message could have been and was heard by the people of Israel. Verse 19, but I asked that Israel not understand. So the second objection, well maybe they didn't understand what's going on. Paul then quotes Moses in Deuteronomy 32 as proof that Israel could look back in their Bible, in their Old Testament scriptures, and see that God foretold that this moment was coming that God, through Moses, predicted that God would use the mercy extended to other nations as a way to both rebuke Israel and to call her back to repentance. So Israel doesn't have excuse. She can't say, I didn't understand. He would say, look at Deuteronomy 32. They can't say we didn't hear. He'd say, listen to Psalm 19. The word's been spread. Think of Pentecost Sunday. There was a great message delivered to Jewish people from all over the known world. And then he ends... In verses 20 and 21, then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me, that being the Gentiles, and I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, he says, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. The idea is that God is extending his arms of grace and love. All you need to do is believe in Jesus. All you need to do is put your faith in him. All you need to do is believe that he is your Messiah, and there is atonement, and there is forgiveness. So the idea is that God is mercifully calling the people of Israel. Even today, he's calling the people of Israel, as he's calling all people from all tribes and all tongues all over the world. If you'll just put your faith in Christ, there's forgiveness and mercy. It's the same message that's available to anyone in this room or who hears this message today, that if you put your faith in Christ, if you believe in him, according to Romans 10, you too can be saved. And yet, The sad reality with Israel is that despite all of her prophecies, despite all of the blessings that God had given her, all of the pleadings of God on her behalf, there was very little receptivity to the gospel. Paul keeps quoting Isaiah, and he's a great illustration of a relentless and difficult calling. Isaiah was part of the upper echelon in Israel's society, Back in the Old Testament, he goes into the temple, he sees a vision of God and his holiness, so much so that he is stricken and he's, he describes himself as being undone or pulled apart at the seams. After coming to terms with this vision of who and what God is, he hears God say, who will go for us, whom shall I send? And Isaiah, struck by the just beauty of who and what God is, says, here am I, send me. And then God gives him his ministry, which essentially is go preach and no one will believe. Go and declare to these people that they need to turn, and they never will. In fact, here's how it sounds in Isaiah chapter 6. It says, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. He was to continue this ministry, and then he wondered, how long, O Lord? In fact, he asks that in verse 11, and the answer is, until the cities lie waste without inhabitants. So Isaiah's ministry from God was one that always included the faithful declaration of 
the ministry of the gospel communicated to God's people, and yet for the most part, there were no results. So what do we, what do we make of the sad reality of Israel and even the story of Isaiah? Here's a couple thoughts. The first is this, that the gospel, church, the good news about Jesus is worth proclaiming regardless of the response. I want you to understand that. I want you to feel it deeply within you. I want you to meditate on that and think about that. The next time that you're, you're presented with an opportunity to talk about the gospel, because somewhere in the back of your mind, you might think this person's not gonna receive this, they're not gonna hear this. Or maybe there's someone in your world, a family member, a neighbor, somebody in your, your orbit of relationships where you've just come to a sort of a settled mentality of they're just never going to receive Christ. And so you've closed your mouth when it comes to the gospel. And this text would indicate that our primary motivation for sharing the gospel needs to be the beauty of the gospel, not the probability or the improbability of the response in receiving the gospel. Otherwise, we'll become way too easily discouraged or we'll become overly pragmatic. Let's do anything we possibly can to guarantee that this person will somehow make a decision and we'll try and upend that sovereign working of God's spirit because we have to press, we have to grab, we have to have a decision, otherwise our, our, our evangelism isn't worthwhile and the idea is the gospel is worth proclaiming regardless of the response. And here's the second thing. And that is this, God is working out a sovereign plan and we have no idea what season of life God has chosen for us. I mean, what if, what if God gave you the calling of Isaiah? How long could you last? What if you said, I'm in. I wanna, I wanna, I wanna be an evangelist for you. I wanna go and declare the gospel. And God says, awesome, your words are gonna be judgment words, not life-giving words, so go and preach, but no one's gonna be converted. How long could you do that? We have no idea where we fall in God's plan. We don't know where we fall in God's plan for the world as it relates to this little sliver of history that we, we live in. Edniram Judson was a Congregationalist and Baptist missionary to the country of Burma, now Myanmar, for 40 years. 1800s, he travels over to Burma, had to go by boat, buried, I think, three wives in the course of his missionary journeys. In the first 18 years of ministry, you know how many converts he had? 18 years, you know how many converts he had? 12. And yet at his death, there were 100 churches and over 8,000 converts in an area of the world that had never heard the gospel because of the relentlessness of a man named Judson. Oh, be careful that you don't make quick assessments of your fruitfulness and effectiveness. You have no idea the effect of a gospel witness being given in someone's life. So do you have anyone in your orbit who is resistant who's stubborn, hard-hearted? Do you have somebody in your life who feels beyond the reach of the gospel? Let me encourage you from Romans 10. This text seems to encourage us that we ought to rest in God's sovereign purposes. You're in that person's life for a reason. They're gonna show up at a family reunion. That is not just an event for you to deal with and manage and endure. That's a gospel moment. So wear your Jesus First t-shirt at it or do something, 
something. You're there not just as a family member, and you're not there for the great hot dogs that your Aunt Millie brings. What you're there for is to be able to proclaim the gospel in some context. Our his, the history of the church is filled with people who had no idea what the fruit of their life or their witness would be. And Paul keeps preaching to the Jews. He keeps preaching to the Jews. He keeps preaching to the Jews, even though he knows that for the most part, there will be very few converts. And you know why he could do that? Because he loved the gospel, not just the response of the gospel. Secondly, there's a divine process as it relates to conversion. Let's go back to verses 14 and 15. There's four questions and five steps that are identified here. How will then they call on him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him in whom they have never heard? How are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? So what Paul identifies here for us, and it's a very unusual passage, I don't know of any other like this in the New Testament, where Paul identifies the very specific chain of events related to the conversion of people that involves sending and preaching and hearing and believing and calling, and all of them are linked together. And what he talks about is the divinely ordained process by which God converts sinners. In other words, as true as divine election is, divine election didn't save and doesn't save anyone. The gospel still has to be believed. It has to be preached. It has to be received. And so you balance Romans 9 with a robust understanding of Romans 10, and you preach knowing that there's confidence that God is sovereign in all of these events, and so therefore you pursue both the beauty of God's sovereignty and the stunning reality of the declaration of the gospel, and you leave it up to God, but you open your mouth and declare it. That's how you balance Romans 9 and 10. Verse 13, everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. Verse 14, how are they to call on him in whom they have not believed? What does it mean to call? To call means that you place your confidence in, you rely upon God for deliverance, you you ask him for help, you call on him, you say, I can't do this on my own, help me, I call on you. It's all over the Old Testament. Psalm 18, I call on the Lord who's worthy to be praised. Psalm 145, 18, the Lord is near to all who call on him. So to be a Christian means fundamentally that we call on the name of the Lord. It means that you stop looking to yourself, you stop calling on you, but instead call out for help from him. In order to be saved, one must call. They must call on Christ. Verse 14, they can't call unless they believe. So it's the belief that then prompts the calling. The calling is the outward expression of the inward reality of belief. Verse 9 of chapter 10, verse 10 of chapter 10, verse 11 of chapter 10 all tell us about the importance of belief. If you believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Verse 10, with the heart one believes and is justified. Verse 11, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. To believe means that you take God at his word. That when the Bible says you're a sinner, that you believe it. When the Bible says that there's 
sacrifice available, there's atonement available through the person and work of Christ that even though you've not seen it or you weren't there, you believe it. To believe it means that you rest your life in eternity on all the Bible says about you and sin and the cross and forgiveness. It means that you come to a point in your life when you stop believing your gospel inside of you, meaning the news that you believe to be true about you, and instead you say, I believe that the Bible is true, I believe that Jesus is the Son of God, I believe that God raised him from the dead, and I believe that he could be my savior and I call upon him to become my savior and Lord. And that is how someone is converted. They're converted, they become a Christian by believing in the name of Jesus. There's a calling, there's a believing, and now we come to hearing. So it, it moves, it's moving further and further away from the person. So if they've, if, they've, if they've been saved and if they've called and if they believed, then it says, how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? So Paul essentially says something very simple and yet very, very important, and it's this, that people cannot believe if they've never heard the message of the gospel. In order for them to believe, they must have heard that word. So being spiritual or being religious or belief alone, just belief in general, doesn't save anyone. Unless a person believes in Jesus, there is no hope for eternal life, and that means that God aims to engage the heart as people hear the good news. And the fact of the matter is, is that this very day there are 6,600 people groups spread all over the world who if something radical isn't done, these people will likely never hear even the name of Jesus. They'll grow up, they'll live in a culture, and they'll never even know the name Jesus. 6,600 people groups, or three billion people, and in particular areas of the world like India, it's the vast majority of a particular section of that country where people will never hear the name of Jesus unless something significant and radical is done. And listen to me, if they don't hear, they can't believe. And if they don't believe, they can't call. And if they can't call, they won't be saved. And so therefore, hearing is absolutely vital to saving because it's the link that helps people to come and know the person and work of Jesus. How can they hear without someone preaching? This is the word meaning heralding or telling. The word preach doesn't have a great context. I don't, I don't tell people that I'm a preacher. I mean, after all, someone, when someone wants you to get out of their face or is pushing back on what you're saying, they may say something like, don't preach at me, which is a, a negative connotation. And in some respects, I understand why. I mean, I was in Chicago a couple months ago and I, I heard a street preacher, and I don't even want to use that word because it wasn't that. He had a megaphone and just, I was part of a group of people walking by and he's, he's just screaming at people and he's saying, you need to believe in Jesus! And I wanted to say, you need to be quiet, because you're not helping me. And I'm listening to these people as I'm walking by, they're making fun of him, they're making fun of the name of Jesus, they're mocking everything else. And maybe his heart is in the right place, I don't know, but hurling the gospel at people and yelling it at them, I don't think is an effective means of preaching. What I mean by preaching is this, boldly declaring the beauty of the gospel message in a way that fits with the very heart of Jesus. And you gotta figure out what that word preaching looks like in your arena. Don't, you, don't think for a moment, it's just this, like what I'm doing right now, that, that's the only definition. It isn't, it's you across the coffee table from somebody 
sharing with them the beauty of what it means to become a follower of Jesus. It's you at your family gatherings this summer talking about what it means to have your sins forgiven. It's engaging someone in dialogue like I did with a person a few weeks ago. I was getting my hair cut and this person's from a Jewish background. We're talking about sin and what it means to have our sins forgiven. And I mean, she's got scissors in her hand. I'm nervous, you know, and so I'm (laughs) trying to be careful. And it means that you figure out how to be able to declare the gospel. Because in order for the gospel to be believed, it has to be heard. In order for it to be heard, it has to be preached. And finally, it involves people being sent. Verse 15, and how are they to preach unless they are sent? This word sent, Jesus uses it in Luke 10 when he sent out the 72. Same word he uses in Luke 10, verse three, when he says, go your way, behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. I mean, this is like a rocket science or a veterinarian to figure out when lambs hang out with wolves. The idea is I'm sent, you, you got a mission, and this mission may not be easy, and the history of the church is filled with people who love the gospel and loved Christ more than being accepted by everybody or having things that always went well. And the idea is I'm sending you out. And the fact of the matter is this, this word is the same word that's used for the word apostle, but you can't relegate it just to full-time Christian workers or people in ministry, you can't relegate this to the the disciples or the apostles. The reality is, is that we are all sent. I mean, the fact of the matter is, God's means of reaching the world is us. There is no other strategy to reach the city of Indianapolis than you and me opening our mouth. He's not gonna paint it in the sky. There's no other means. He has appointed it that it's the church's role to scatter out into the world and figure out how to take the beauty of the gospel and the relationships that are around you for you to be able to open your mouth and realize this conversation and these words coming out of my mouth, this is why I'm on planet Earth right now to be able to declare this word. Everything else is context. My family, my neighborhood, my job, my health, Everything is context for this word. This word that I'm speaking to you is the words of life. And see, the reality is is that we have to be so careful because in the midst of a culture that has so many really good things, we can suddenly be filled with all kinds of distractions as to why we are on the earth. We can do Great things like a career and raising kids and developing friendships and finding a spouse and finishing our education. And we do all these things and there's nothing wrong with them, but they, they're not the essence. They're the context, the calling that God has placed on us. It's, it's the reason why we started the Next Door Mission, why we've got 300 people working together to try and think, of how, what do we do to reach Northeast Indy? Part of the reason we started that was so that as we send people out, we're reminded, oh yeah, that's right. You don't stay in one place forever sometimes. Sometimes part of the mission of the church is to multiply and send, and we give away our people in order to be able to reach the city because it's really important that we reach the city, not just that people are theologically informed as to all the intricacies of the Bible. Church becomes odd in the fact that it begins to be more more focused on itself 
over the years, and we need to continually remind ourselves that this church doesn't exist just for us. It's here so that we can be deployed out to reach the world. That's the point, and it's so easy, although we know it, to live as though we've forgotten it. Finally, the beauty of evangelism is this calling that we find in verse 15. He says this, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. I think this is the apex of the text. I think verses 14 and 15 get us up to this point, and then verses 16 through 21 is the downside of the mountain. How beautiful are the feet. Isn't it interesting that he uses feet? I mean, Paul has any number of body parts at his disposal to mention. How beautiful are the lips of the person who preaches the good news. I mean, that's awesome. I mean, that'd work. How beautiful are the legs that carry the message? He chooses feet. Why feet? I think it's because feet are so important, and yet they are relatively unattractive and unnoticed. We have, you have to work really hard to make feet look good. That's why you spend so much money on shoes. That's why if I said to you, by way, just to make this clear, if I said this to you, by way of application today, we're all gonna take off our shoes, and for the rest of the day, we're gonna walk around barefoot. Some of you would be, oh, you're thinking of toe jam and squirrely looking uh, pinky toes, and I mean, feet by definition are not very attractive. In fact, I was listening to a, um, a report on NPR interviewing a person who designs suits for guys who are in the NFL draft, about how she designs them and everything else, and she said this, I often start with the shoes, because these guys often spend more money on shoes than anything else. The person, well, how, like, how much? As well, just one person had a $7,000 pair of shoes. It's like, wow, that guy's got some nice feet, right? <laughs> the fact of the matter is, what, what are our feet? Our feet are smelly, they're functional, they're dirty, they're normal, they're unattractive, and Paul says, how beautiful are the feet that carry the good news. And that's what happens, is the gospel takes the ordinary things of life and makes them extraordinary. For instance, how beautiful is the backyard grill that is used to preach the good news? How beautiful is the vacation Bible school that's used to invite your neighbors not just to get a day of childcare for your kids? How beautiful is the group of 300 people who are leaving this church and starting a new campus in Northeast Indy? How beautiful is a summer job that opens the door for gospel conversations? Some of you right now, you're interviewing, young people, teenagers, college students, you're interviewing for jobs, and you know the placement of you in that job is not just so you can have money for college or a new car to fund your dates with your girlfriend. That job is all there in order sovereignly to put you in front of people who need to know about the beautiful message of the gospel. How beautiful is a worship arts camp performance that's leveraged to invite family members how beautiful is an invitation to a neighbor to come to your church? How beautiful is a lawnmower that's used to extend grace to a neighbor? How beautiful is a soccer game or a baseball game that opens the door for gospel conversations? You're not in the little league so your kid can make it in the big leagues. It's not gonna happen anyways, right? So, 
sorry. Well, maybe. You know why you're there? You're there to build relationships and for conversations that relate to more beautiful things than baseball, soccer. So here's my exhortation to you, church. Do not waste your summer. With the winding down of school, people streaming out of their homes, I want us to be the kind of people who use normal everyday life to make much of the gospel. Think of the calling that's on each of our lives. Where has God placed you? What doors could he open? Whether you're in a school or in career, in your neighborhood, I want you to be with me the kind of people who understand our mission and our purpose in life. That there is nothing greater in life than seeing God at work in people's lives. But in order for people to call in the name of the Lord, they have to hear. And in order for them to hear, we have to open our mouths as people who are sent by God. How beautiful to be at church that is filled with people who joyfully bring the good news of the kingdom. I want you to be that kind of church for the glory of God and for the redemption of people in this city who need to hear so that they'll believe and need to believe so that they'll call, so that they call in order that they might be saved. Let's pray. Father, help us as we now consider what your calling on our lives is and where you've placed us. Give us boldness to realize that what we need to do in India in India is happening, happening all over the world and that there are people groups who need to hear the gospel and that there's no other means to fund those efforts and no other means to reach them apart from us. And so we pray you'd help us. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.